In 2009, the O2 Arena hosted its first ATP Finals with Nikolai Davidenko saluting with the trophy. 11 years later in 2020, it was only fitting that a Russian, Daniel Medvedev, would bookend the tournament with his win over Dominic Team in the final to salute in the O2's final hosting, or hosting of the event. This is Breakpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Val Ferber. We do have a massive, massive program lined up for you. And when I say massive, I mean Milmania type massive because John Milman is our special guest on the show. And for those who have listened, they know how much we do love Johnny on this program. And oh, it, it was an absolute thrill. It was about it was a fairly in-depth chat. We can't wait to bring it to you. And Joel Frucci, my right-hand man, my co-host, joins me. And he's just buzzing because he was able to tell John Milman that he watched him at 2016 Wimbledon. Yeah, I did get to tell him that, Val. Um, and I never thought I'd get the chance to do that. Uh Shout out to my, my good friend, uh, Adrian Horton, as he would say. Cat's out of the bag. He's definitely not listening to the show, but shout out to him anyway. Um, yeah, we've already spoken to John, and it was just an absolute thrill for the both of us. Never thought I'd get to tell him that story um, and, and just, just how fond of memory uh, it is. But um, I can't wait for our listeners to hear the chat. We got a really good bit of time out of him. He was very generous with his time, and uh, we hope you all enjoy that um, as much as we did. But uh before then, we got to chat about the year-end finals because it was a great week in tennis and they've just wrapped up on Monday with Daniel Medvedev winning the title in London. As you said, Val beat Dominic Team in three sets. Finishes the year with two titles back-to-back, 10 wins in a row. Not bad at all from Daniel. No, especially because early on in the year, it wasn't, it was somewhat consistent, but not like no, nowhere near the heights than the lofty heights that he reached in 2019. And I think to finish on a 10-match winning streak, as you said, and um, yeah, back-to-back titles in Paris-Bercy and um, and then at the ATP Finals, I think that is a massive win, and especially the way he did it. He dropped four sets throughout the entirety of those 10 matches, uh, one to Zverev, one to Alex Dimonor, one to Rafael Nadal, and one to Dominic Team. We mustn't forget that he played Novak Djokovic, in that time. He also played Alexander Zverev again in that time. And then Diego Schwartzman as well. He was able to dominate all of those players and Daniel Medvedev should be so proud of the the end of the year that he had and just to be able to solve the Nadal puzzle, to come back from a set down in that semi-final after he'd been heartbroken by Nadal a few times. One of those was at this tournament last year. And then to be winless in the group stage in 2019 and to come out and win all five of your matches in 2020 and get the maximum amount of points. Um, it's such an impressive run and, and the court speed did help him. We know that, but to come back again from a set down against Dominic Team, um, it was, yeah, he was truly remarkable throughout this week um, and deserved the title. And I, I think his demeanor, the way that he plays, the way that he goes about his business, he's just, he looked like he had his head screwed on even more so than usual. And he was so focused. And, and what he did to Novak Djokovic, I've never seen someone play such a perfect match against Novak before. Yeah, I've never really seen anyone out Novak, Novak like Daniil did. I mean, it was, it was brilliant. He moved him around the court really well, but not only did he move him, he actually moved him around with, with power. And that's what you need to do. Uh, against Novak and of course he served very well he didn't necessarily rely on that serve but he's got a really good serve uh, and he used it and um, you know we said a lot in uh, our uh, daily shows throughout the tournament with um, with the, the tennis menu and, and Mark's force go go check those out on, on YouTube if you 
not seen them yet, where we discussed a lot about how Daniil uh, got the job done. And we'll, we'll hear from him directly in a minute on how he got the job done. But yeah, the serve um, certainly helped. And yeah, um, you know, it's it's not often that you go into any tournament, really. I mean, of course, there's a bigger chance of it at, at a year-end finals. But to get the job done against both Novak and Rafa um, at the same event really speaks volumes, I think, of, um, of how far Daniil has... Uh, has come certainly in the last couple of months. We know he had a very poor clay court season and we're kind of just waiting for him to take that that next step. Um, we certainly hope that this is a stepping stone for him. Of course, he probably needs to really become that all-court player. But I think it was really telling that in that match against Rafa, not only did he get the win and, and break that, that ceiling, that mental kind of barrier, um, he in the end, he actually outlasted um, Rafa physically. And it was the first time in a long time that I can remember just seeing Rafa looks so, so tired. Um, I mean, Daniel just really ran over the top of him in the end. Yep. Look, the guy is 35 years old, Rafa. It's it's going to be normal for him to look like that with the way that he plays, and especially the the volume of work that I think those those types of players have put in over the last couple of months, especially, I think, with the with Roland Garros being so late um, and with the spate of tournaments that we saw just sort of scattered around Europe after Roland Garros and, and before that, I think it's been a pretty hectic few months for those players. So I'm not surprised, but look, Rafa, um, it, it was an effort for him to get to the semifinals. He, it's it's not a stage that he gets to often at this tournament. And this is always a tournament we see from Rafa where he does sort of fade out very, very quickly because of the way that he plays. These indoor hard courts don't really suit him. He's always carrying sort of something or some sort of injury towards the end of the year, isn't he? Um, but yeah, it was great to see. But it, it's so, I think, unfortunate for Dominic Team because both of these players beat Rafa and Novak and one of them didn't win the title. And it's just so, I think it's cruel that Dominic Team couldn't win it, but both of them did have to beat Rafa and Novak to get there, and that's what was so impressive that the fact that they both did get to the final. They they accounted for one of each in the in the group stage with uh, Medvedev beating Novak and team beating Rafa and straight in the group stage, and then they get to the semis and both of them beat them in absolute epics with team against um team against Novak in a two hour and fifty four minute thriller, and then Medvedev over Nadal in two hours and thirty five minutes, and then the next day they got to go and back it up again. So genuinely amazing from both players and I think this tournament was was a success it was a shame that the O2 Arena's last um their last sort of year hosting this event was with no crowds because it was by far one of the most exciting and um as we move to Turin next year tennis is um in, in or males or men's tennis anyway is in such an amazing position where in best of three set matches I think we can safely say we don't know what's going to happen yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's going to be it's going to be interesting going into going into next year, and um, I suppose the you know the first thing that's really coming to mind with with next year, it's probably the first <clears throat> pardon me, the first piece of the puzzle that we really need to work through. It's the Australian summer, uh, Val, and there's been uh, a, a lot of clouds hanging over the uh, the Australian Open and, and and the lead up events as well. So hearing a, a variety of things, we we heard last week from our good friend Brett Phillips on SEN that. The Aussie Open mightn't start um, until late March, early April, and you'd have to think that it's an event that um, Daniel at the moment would be would be a real favourite for, given the, the the I guess the the conditions and the and the surface. But um, this morning there was a report from uh, from the Age uh, 
saying that some qualities could potentially uh, be cancelled US Open style and that could pave the way for the event to go ahead um, just a week after the scheduled start date um, in January. So that would certainly be more conducive to the calendar. But overall, clearly, there's there's a really cautious approach here from the relevant authorities um, with, with hotel quarantine. And, you know, I know we, I know we, we, we spoke about this off air and we, we probably disagree on it a little bit, but I, I really don't have any problem with, with the, 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 the state government and also the federal government going with that cautious approach because we've just clocked up uh, zero active COVID cases in Victoria as of today for any international listeners that, that haven't heard and, and they're clearly being really careful to preserve that because a lot of work has gone into it. And, um, you know, I, I actually think it's fair enough because the source of that outbreak, that first outbreak, which really hit us hard in Victoria, we peaked at almost 700 and I think it was 750 cases daily in late July, early August around then. The source of that was hotel quarantine. So tennis players and officials, um, team members coming into Australia from abroad, from COVID-ravaged parts of the world, are going to have to go into hotel quarantine. So clearly they're not really willing to run the risk and they want to make sure that they get that right before uh, this, this massive of people can, can come in. And I think it's, I actually think it's fair enough. I completely understand that, and I do. But the one thing that I'm thinking of, that hotel quarantine was, and yes, a lot of people will disagree, and a lot of people are sort of, a lot of people are on the fence. A lot of people either agree or disagree with this statement and it's more controversial than anything, but it was a government blunder. And it was a Victorian, it was. It was a Victorian government blunder because yes, they could have, they said that, you know, um, this security company went by themselves and hired, um, and hired a subcontracting company. Why didn't the government know about it? Why didn't the government take, or the Victorian government take the federal government help? It's not our prime minister's fault. He's got, you know, he's more involved in what's happening internationally. The Victorian government and under Daniel Andrews has, well, they failed miserably in the hotel quarantine saga. And I think if we can do it properly and not have any security guards that can't keep it in their pants, I think if we're, if we're strict enough, I think we can make it work. But being strict, I mean strict. Yes, the players won't like it, but if they're into, if they want to come here in mid-December, they can do that. But the players have to quarantine. Their team has to quarantine. The flight attendants have to quarantine. The drivers who drive them from the airport have to quarantine. Whoever comes in contact with these players, whoever was on the flight, whoever is coming to any sort of contact with them, has to quarantine in these bubbles for two weeks. That's all we can say. That that that's is, what but... that's what that's what must be done. And we need to it be is. and we need to be hardline about it. It's only two weeks. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's crap and you don't want to have to do it. It sounds horrible. But we went through hell as Victorians. Absolute hell. Weren't allowed to go outside five five kilometers from our house barring a various few reasons. Um, an hour of exercise a day. Having to wear masks inside and outside, everywhere we went. Um, that's only just being sort of eased now. Um, a curfew from 8 p.m. till 5 a.m. Curfews in America at the moment are at 10 p.m. at least. So we've we've had to go through a lot in Victoria. If we can do it for a sustained period of time, these players can do it for two weeks. If they really want to play, and they do, 
it seems as though. Um, the Victorian government and the Australian government just need to say, okay, well, we can get this done, but you guys are just going to have to put up with two weeks of quarantine where you might not be able to hit. And look, I don't know if they should be able to hit because that's just going to jeopardise a lot of things. And yeah, it's before an Australian Open, but if we're quarantining in December... I know, but if we're quarantining in December, that still gives them time to have lead-up events before the Australian Open, and then they can just integrate into the Melbourne community. But... Mm. Yeah. Mm. There's, it's a lot of, there's a lot of hearsay. There's a lot of opinions that can go into this, Joel. I, I think it could be done. I definitely do think it could be done. But again, two weeks of quarantine is pretty difficult. Yeah, look, I mean, it's a tough one. I don't think it's so much about the players being willing to actually do the hard yards in quarantine. I think it's more about uh, the... I think it's more about the capacity of people coming in. And, and something that we can't remember, uh, pardon me, that we can't forget is that uh, ever since this second wave started, it, we haven't actually had any international arrivals directly yeah. into Victoria. So it's really it's really set a lot of people back. And, I mean, it certainly helps our, our record of, of numbers is that the other states have been, uh, have been taking people in. So, look, I can understand that um, the government, uh, when, when the hotel quarantine program resumes, that they would want to be really, really cautious um, with it and make sure it works properly strictly as you said but i think that's going to take time before yeah. they welcome um literally literally the world's tennis community uh into victoria and as as a as a victorian i'm actually i actually don't don't really mind being on yeah. them. and look, look you know you know what else i mean looking ahead to 2021 the thing is i don't think the calendar was ever really going to be normal anyway um I mean, who knows when we're going to get a vaccine? I don't think we'll ever have true normality until we get that, and that that certainly applies to to tennis. I mean, we're not going to have the, the breakup that we saw this year, the three or four months, whatever it was, between events, but certainly things are going to have to be shuffled around. And I think there's a lot of people in tennis, like Novak Djokovic, that are just going to have to accept that, um, you know, not everything's set, set in stone. There are going to be still more hurdles until we get that silver bullet, which is the vaccine. Um, so... Look for me. For me, it's kind of it's kind of on them to actually understand what's going on, where we are in in Victoria, and actually realise, um, you know, that the world is not normal at the moment. Every 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 state, every country around the world are in a different position when it comes to the COVID crisis. We're lucky that in Australia overall, and certainly in Victoria at the moment, we're in a really good position. But there's a history behind the really good position that we're in and the big problem is that hotel quarantine international arrivals have not yet resumed in melbourne they're going to resume soon um we hope that the authorities have been working behind the scenes on a foolproof program but we don't yet know how it's going to work we would hope that it is going to work because they've had so much time to work on it but we don't know that as someone that lives here i would want to know for sure that this program is is going to work and is going to have all the bases covered before the tennis community begins arriving. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And we do need to know this sort of stuff. And look, it's still you'd assume. Well, I don't. I don't know. It still seems like early days in these discussions, and we're only we're less than two months out from when the tournament should be starting. So it's mm. it's a very weird position that we're in. And I look, I would like to see it go ahead on the date um, that it's supposed to, but it's getting increasingly unlikely that it's not that it's not going to happen um 
look, hopefully we might be able to we things might change in the in the dis, in the near future where we might be able to have them in and, and get the tournament done on the normal date. But it doesn't seem as though that is going to happen. And I think the governments will hold fast on their on their stance. And it might start a week later, but that might mean the cancellation of qualifying, which isn't what we want either. So do we want the tournament to go ahead close to the start date with no qualifying or do we want it to be delayed with qualifying and you'd think for the for the benefit for the benefits of the players then if you think about that for those players outside the top 110 or whatever that mm-hmm. having qualifying is going to be more beneficial for them because they're going to be able to get into the into the draw and we saw with the US Open it was the top 120 with eight wild cards being awarded um that wasn't fair to a lot of players, but it was fair to some, but it wasn't to others. So it's um it's a it's an interesting situation that we find ourselves in, and I think more light will be made out of this next week. And it's becoming from things that I've heard, um, just more ever increasingly unlikely that it is going to that it is going to start on January eighteen, and I think it will definitely start later than that. But I think there's ways they could get around it. I get where you're coming from. But I think if they're strict enough, we could get it done properly. But then again, our contact tracing still isn't up to scratch from from what we saw back in back in June, July, when it, when the proverbial well and truly hit the fan. Yeah, look, we. I mean, for me, it's pretty simple. We just need to see all the pieces come into place first. Um, and look, it's there's no doubt that it's a difficult job for for the authorities and for TA as well but and the other thing is the reality of of the COVID situation um we well and truly know this by now is that there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers um hardly hardly any industry almost that's that 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 is more applicable to uh than tennis we saw it at the us open um but i mean we looked at that event and said hey you know it left a it left a legacy of of opportunity we saw guys like chris o'connell um, get into his his first um, or have have his first um, have his first slam win. He made the second round of of the US Open, and you know we were saying that that was a great opportunity for for him. He earned that position in that main draw. Um, so I mean, it's a really really tough situation, but it's you know I think um, yeah I think the the actual health situation has to be put first. Um, I can't be bothered doing another lockdown. Yeah, no, neither can I. And if we have to go into another lockdown, I swear to God, I will riot. I will absolutely riot because, yeah, it wasn't fun the first time. And, um, like, still overseas, the cases are worse, but the lockdown still isn't as strict as what we had to go through here in Victoria. So, fingers crossed that we don't have to go through that again. But, yeah, it's there's it's all sitting on a knife's edge at the moment and there's people. And, look, I, I my opinion might change, but I do think there's possibilities and ways. But that have to be extreme and expensive measures. And that's the thing. It's all, it's, is it worth spending the money on that sort of stuff? Because when you can just get it done later on in the year and it'll be a little bit cheaper. Um, so, and that's what you have to take into account as well, because how many companies have lost money over this year as well. So it's an interesting discussion. And I think the biosecurity bubble is going to be expensive. I read reports it's going to be about $33 million or something along those lines. So, mm. yeah, it's it's interesting. It's ridiculous amount of money. Yeah, it's interesting. But let's get to a more positive thing, Joel. And let's get to a chat with the one and only John Millman.
Throughout 2020, we have seen a pandemic wreaking havoc across the world. But one thing that has kept us all afloat is the notion of Milmania. And that culminated in Kazakhstan when John Milman won his first ATP title in Nursultan back a few weeks ago. Joel and I were both very excited and we're even more excited to announce that John Milman joins us on Breakpoint Podcast. John, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. How are you? Yeah, not a problem. I'm, uh, I'm going well. I... I'm eight of hotel quarantine currently, so that's been an interesting experience and, um, you know, one that I signed up for when I decided to uh, embark on returning to the tour. And the the year itself, I guess um, it's been an extremely weird one, 2020, with the Australian Open, then a couple of tournaments in February, and then that's it pretty much for, for four months, and then you're back in, back in the US in August, but... Um, talk to us about how you found the the strange year and how you found actually um, traveling around the the tour since the restart and and sort of what your thoughts have been on the perspective bubbles. Well, it all started off for me after um, a pretty good Davis Cup win in in Adelaide. The team was it was so much fun. It always is joining with the boys and and also the the extended team there with uh, obviously Leighton at the helm. Um, and, and Rochi, obviously, who I love uh, joining camp with. But uh, we had a really good good week against uh, Brazil, and, and I was fortunate enough to, to be able to, to, to play some singles matches, which is, is all, always fun. And uh, we didn't really get to celebrate. We got on a plane, and, and uh, I, I got to Indian Wells, and pl- I actually got my accreditation, had a round of golf. And I got off the golf course and oh, no. all of a sudden um, they've told me that it's been cancelled. I hadn't been there a day yet. So we then embarked on a, on a five-month, uh, you know, this, this unknown period as to whether we we're going to get back any type of tennis for, for 2020. And it, it was challenging, really was challenging. Uh, tough to, to keep motivated, really, during, during such an unknown period of time. But... When the tour resumed, I really thought that, uh, admittedly at first I was a little bit apprehensive, but I really thought that, uh, you know, I wanted to, to, to get back out there and, and do what I like doing. I'm 31 years old now. I'm not getting any younger. And uh, I did miss it. I missed traveling. I missed competing. And um, in the end, I was really happy with the decision I made because I think the, the tournaments as a whole, and we can probably dive into that a little later, but the tournaments as a whole, created a, a really safe and, and comfortable environment for, for the players to, to compete on. I, I felt safe the, throughout the, you know, entire trip. Um, it was a challenging one, but I think the, the players and the tournaments can, can really give themselves a big pat on the back for getting through it because I think it was really important for the product of tennis to, to get it back out there. So I think we can all feel pretty proud that we did our part to, to get the sport back on track. Hey, Johnny, absolute pleasure to be chatting to you, mate. Um, how did you kind of stay motivated in those in those lulls? Um, because obviously in the end, it was a really uh, beneficial season for you and we've, uh, we've already chatted about that, that title in, in Nurse Sultan. But how, how do you keep, keep motivated in those kind of periods? Uh, it was super challenging. Uh, originally, all the, the tennis centres in Queensland, where, where I'm from, closed. So the, the government closed them down and... Uh, we, uh, we were a bit stuck as to, well, I was a bit stuck as to, as to where I could, could hit some balls. Cause I, you know, for me, it's important. And my, my game style, um, I like to kind of keep my eye and I'm someone who, who likes to hit a lot of balls and that's why staying in a, in a hotel room for two weeks isn't ideal. Uh, but 
you know, we were allowed one a bit of exercise a day and, and throughout the Queensland lockdown, um, a place could have no more than two visitors at a household. So I actually did an off-the-cuff interview uh, with one of the papers uh, in Queensland just saying, and I, I put it as, in as a bit of a joke, um, you know, when discussing my plight, that if anyone had a, a hard court in their backyard and, and you know, they, they haven't used up their, their two-visitor, you know, quota, I'd love to have a bit of a hit and um, actually got some great Queensland families who I didn't know beforehand <laughs> reaching out and, and, you know, offering their, their backyard tennis courts. And what I found out in Brisbane, if you have a backyard tennis court, you have plenty of money because some of these houses were beautiful, but more importantly, the, the families were incredible and um, really reached out at a time of need. And I think that's what the, the Queensland spirit's about. So managed to kind of keep my eye in enough. Um, it was challenging. It was a, you know, a really long kind of training block. And and um, I guess that the toughest thing was is that there was no certainty as to when we were going to be back playing. Uh, but I was really happy, you know, that I managed to keep some type of conditioning up. And, and um, you know, going out by yourself and, and doing these things was, was kind of uh, a bit of a throwback to my early days on the tour. You know, I was... Um, Probably not one of the, the the guys early on that was touted to, to be much chop or, or necessarily going to be you know one of the um, you know higher professional players in Australia. So I kind of did it off my own bat for most of the time as as a youngster and and um, you know with not a lot of help and, and that's how you know during COVID when when everyone's hands were tied, I had to kind of go back to my roots and kind of you know seek out my own. Um, stuff and and in the end managed to keep my eye in well enough that w when we returned back to tour at, at New York but Cincinnati um, I, I was ready to go to some extent I felt a little bit rusty on court in, in terms of matches at that level but as was everyone I think so uh, really happy with that and and really grateful for the the Queensland families for kind of reaching out in a time of need um, you know, hopefully I can repay them. Unfortunately, there's going to be no tennis in, in Brisbane this time round because, you know, they've got tickets for life at the Brisbane International as far as I'm concerned when I'm playing. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome to hear. And uh, it's a nice little segue, Johnny, uh, that you've you've sort of brought up your, your journey a little bit. And we know that uh, obviously in, in your career you have had uh, your challenges to, to overcome. So it's really, it really is great that I think in the hardest of, of all years, really, um, that you have been able to make that, that breakthrough of, of getting that first title. So have you sort of allowed yourself a little bit to kind of just reflect um, on your career and say, you know, there's been this really hard year, but you know what, it might even be kind of fitting that in the hardest year imaginable, you've actually had that breakthrough that you've worked so hard for. Yeah, look, the tennis, for, my, for myself, I probably took a, a fairly different path that a lot of my peers and colleagues around my age in Australia took. I... Um, I have four sisters and, and three of them are older, one younger, and, and both my parents are school teachers. They were both good sports people in their own right, but they were school teachers and they really emphasised the fact that they wanted me to, to get a decent education. Uh, so I did all my schooling back home. Um, I started off high school at a place called Brisbane Grammar, but they were, probably weren't quite that flexible and it wasn't quite the right fit for me to be able to, to still play a little bit of tennis, but also, you know, be able to, to do my schoolwork. So I ended up at a place called Anglican Church Grammar School, Churchy, which 
um, I love that school and uh, I've, I live now, my house is actually close by and uh, like popping in and, and catching up with the, the tennis program there or watching a rugby game. Um, but they were really good. Uh, I was in QAS at the time where I'd get probably like a lesson a week and then I'd do my school tennis tra- training sessions and maybe one state squad a week and, and one private with Gary Stickler. So uh, I, I really didn't do a whole lot of tennis during school, but I did enough to kind of keep my eye in. And then in the school holidays, I would go off and, and play a couple of ITFs um, locally, which I did well in. So I knew that my level wasn't too bad, but a lot of my peers at that age were, you know, being relatively fully funded um, probably by the federation and, and going off and playing junior grand slams and, and doing the whole junior circuit. But I went a different, a slightly different path and kind of when I finished playing, uh, oh, I was finished school, sorry, I should say, I decided to take it a lot more serious. Unfortunately, um, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily touted as, you know, and that's fine. The guys are paid to, to kind of pick the talent and, and um, you're not going to hit every time and, and you're not going to miss every time either. And um, I, early on, I'd say I was probably one of the ones that, you know, I was probably more of a wait and see for them and, and uh, decided to play some tennis. I had a few injuries along the way that required a few surgeries, but bit by bit, when I was fit, I managed to continually improve, which was something that, that I had to do. I liken my career early on as to a bit of an apprenticeship, you know, like uh, doing an electrician prep apprenticeship, a trade, uh, it takes time. It took it took me time to to get my conditioning up. It took me time to kind of hone my skills and develop my game, and to to gain that confidence at all the different levels um, that I was good enough as I was going through the grades. So it did take a little bit of time, and and the injuries didn't help. That was a, a real kind of kick in the guts. But eventually, you know, people more people started to, to take notice, and I managed to to get a little bit more support. And when I wasn't getting the support, I was playing club tennis in Germany to, to, to make some money. So it hasn't always been easy, but it's been a journey and and, um, and it's been one that, that I'm proud of and, and one that, you know, I can look back at and, and at all different stages, whether it was club tennis in, in Germany or Switzerland, um, all the time I was kind of honing my skills and developing my game and uh, for it to culminate, um, to be a Davis Cup player, to have gone to an Olympics, to have made a quarter of a Grand Slam and been competitive in a lot of the other ones, and then to, to win a ATP Tour title was, you know, just another box that I wanted to, to tick off and and something that's really inspired me for 2021. I, I really do feel as if it's the same when I was starting off in Futures. You know, I, I really questioned myself. I was, remember I was in Spain early on. I was 18 years old and... Um, <laughs> It was a 128 qualifying draw at a $10,000 future. So I had to win four matches to get about 100, 100 euro. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was there by myself and <laughs> battling away, and, and it was tough. And, and the guys over there are really good players. There's, there's a lot. Probably the depth, I would say, overseas is, is a fair bit stronger than here that we've got in Australia. So it was really eye-opening. And uh, I remember doubting myself. And, and throughout, you know, I think it's normal to have those doubts, especially when you kind of throw yourself in the deep end straight away. But you win, you start winning matches and you start winning future events and then you make that that, that next progression up into the challenger level. And, and the whole process starts again. You know, you, you start to think, well, is, is, is this where my potential's reached? You know, am I going to be competitive at this level? And eventually you start winning games and you start winning challenger events and 
it starts all over again at the ATP level. And now I've got that breakthrough win. It gives me a lot of confidence going forward into, into 2021. And, and like you said, it hasn't always been easy sledding, but yeah, perhaps it's fitting that I, I managed to do so, um, you know, in a COVID stricken year, but I've got to say, um, it didn't make it any easier in the tournaments. I, I think you guys would have seen all the cuts at the tournaments and that. And I mean, I, I don't think they've ever been any stronger. It's uh, it's crazy right now, um, just with the limited amount of tennis. But everyone wanting to play, it's been a uh, it was a really tough trip. But um, you know, there was uh, some good news at the end of it for me. Well, the players that you beat in that in that tournament to win in No Sultan, you beat Fernando Vadasco, former top ten player, up and comer Tommy Paul. Francis Tiafo, who you had an epic with at the U.S. Open, and then Adrian Manorino, who's a who's a wily customer at the best of times. So not an easy draw at all. So to win that um, win that title was simply astonishing. And then talking about your journey, John, you have had a lot of injuries throughout your career, and some that almost were career ending. And the shoulder injury in 2013, especially after playing so well against Roger Federer at um or or was it Andy Murray at, at Brisbane. Um, and then you get that, I remember reading that you had a wild card for the French Open, but you had to rescind it. Talk to us about what happened there and um, how difficult the decision that actually was. Yeah, I was putting together a really good year in 2013 and probably one of the, the probably the second year I'd had, I would say, some, some pretty good support from the Federation. I'd, I'd done a, a year, in, I reckon 2010 or 2011 with Milo Bradley, where I got my breakthrough and, and won my first challenger. And then Come 2013, I think Benny Mathias was looking after four of us players and I managed to start the season off really well. Um, had a really tough one, like you touched on, that was against Andy Murray, um, where I went down in three sets. But I was starting to play some pretty good tennis. I think I won a challenger not long after that and was starting to get a fair bit of momentum. I think I was about 130 in the world come Munich, where I was... Um, I, I'd qualified. That's when it was th- three rounds of qualies. Got through, I think, of Starkovsky last round qualies, playing some pretty good tennis. And first round, I was warming up and I felt something in my shoulder that, that didn't quite feel right. Uh, the thing is, that year I was 130, but the year before, just to try to make a living, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd played club tennis for about three, four months in Germany and Switzerland the year before. And I wasn't planning to do that this, this time because I'd thought I'd position myself at 130 with nothing to defend for probably three, four months, mm. um, that I had a really good opportunity to, to crack that top 100. And when you're playing tennis, that's kind of like that big uh, milestone that you want to achieve is, is top 100 tennis. I don't know why, but yeah, you put it in your head that you want to be a top 100 tennis player for whatever reason. And um, for myself in particular, it was like, if I'm a top 100 tennis player, that means I've, I've, I'm a proper tennis player. So... I really thought I had a really good opportunity. And um, at first it was wrongly diagnosed. I was in Bordeaux after Munich and they said it was bursitis. So they said, hey, no problem. Just take this week off. And worst comes to worst, if you get to Paris and it's still playing up, we can just inject a little bit of cortisone in there and that'll take away the bursitis. It's like a shoulder blister. Uh, I got the wild card into the the French Open, which was awesome for me. That was going to be my first um, time I'd played a uh, main draw at Roland Garros and um, I got to Paris and it still wasn't feeling great. So I went to get this injection. They did the imaging there just to get the right spot. And they said, there's no sign of bursitis, but you've got a torn labrum. So a slap repair is one of the more significant injuries I'd say for a tennis player. Obviously so much load goes through that shoulder and 
Um, when you've got a slap slap repair that needs to be done, it means there's an, a tear there in your labrum. Everything's unstable. So the only real option to, to fix it up is surgery, but it's, uh, and I figured out it was, it's a, about a, a 12 month, um, process, which, uh, was really tough. And, uh, I think probably the toughest thing about it was the fact that, you know, I felt like I was so close to, to cracking through to that top hundred, that milestone in my head that I thought was the be all and end all. And, um, to have to start from scratch again was tough. Uh, in terms of the, the French Open wild card, they said they could inject it and it might take away the pain and I could play, but they couldn't guarantee that it was going to be 100%. So I had only a couple of hours to really decide what I would do. Um, you know, take the risk and and, um, and go out there and on court, get the injection and you know, it might be all right. It's not the long-term solution, but I could play a role in Garros, which is something I dreamed of and... Not to mention also, and, and it comes into your head, obviously, that the money too, that was about 30,000 euros that um, would have been massive for me because uh, at that stage I hadn't made much money at all in my career. And, you know, 12 months before that I was playing club tennis just to stay afloat. So uh, I had that decision, but it's never been in me to to not be able to give 100% on the court. And, and uh, I thought a wild card is something that's not necessarily something that I own. You know, it's a, it's a blessing that Tennis Australia gets a few of those wild cards. And, and I thought I'd, to do, to do it justice, I'd, I'd have to be a hundred percent. Otherwise um, I, I toiled, um, you know, with the choice, but otherwise I, I thought that it'd be better to give another Aussie a chance. And in the end, that Aussie was um, Nick Kyrgios. And I, I think he really made his breakthrough that week. And obviously the, you know, we know how good Nick Kyrgios is. So, um, look, that was the decision I had to make then and, and it was really challenging. And then the next 12 months proved to be super tough. I was to the extent where I didn't know if I was going to play tennis again. Um, I was working in the city, uh, doing a bit of a desk job. And uh, eventually though, I, I saw the light and I, I kind of uh, managed to make a full recovery and, and to, to get back playing tennis and, and doing something that I really enjoyed. And that has become a very fruitful career. And we'll fast forward a few years to the 2018 US Open. And I guess you know where I'm going now. And that's the win over Roger Federer in the fourth round. And that was that took the tennis world by storm. He won the first set. But then you held your nerve and won the next three in really tight fashion. Talk to us about that match and what your memories are of it. And, and just the sheer jubilation that you're part of a Grand Slam quarterfinal, which I was reading a few days ago. There's a last eight club at the U.S. Open, which I wasn't aware of. So talk to us about the match first and then what this last, last eight club is. It, leading into that tournament, I was really kind of down in the dumps a little bit. I'd kind of tweaked my back and, you know, I wasn't necessarily happy with the new uh, job they'd done on the rackets. I thought that they weren't playing the exact same and, and those little things um, – implode in your head when you've got a really important tournament coming around which is the u.s open you know you probably find a couple of excuses there to be honest with you but uh it's funny going into that tournament you know i really was kind of down in the dumps and and, you know i wasn't feeling great about my game and managed to get through my first round and and then it's amazing how quickly you can turn it around and and you know one win comes and all of a sudden you know you, you're a couple of inches taller when you walk into the change rooms and you start to feel pretty good about yourself so managed to get a bit of momentum going into the the 
Georgia match, I won, you know, three three matches. Um, so that was a fourth round match. My first round was against a guy called Jensen Brooksby, who uh, uh, who was, I think, actually going to be a really good player. He's over at Baylor now. Um, he was a wild card. He'd won the 18s Nationals. So they always give a Kalamazoo. They always give a wild card to, to that person. Then I beat Fab, Fabio Fognini. Um, Fabio. Yeah, he's, you know, he's a, a bit of an enigma and, and um, obviously one of the more talented players going around. Uh, played Kukushkin then, who had had a really big battle with Hyun Chung. So I, I was match fit. I was feeling pretty good about myself coming into the Roger match. I'd played Roger before, which really helps. And going into that match, I just didn't want to play anyone's reputation. You know, it was going to be a night match on Ash, so it was kind of, unfamiliar surroundings. I'd managed to hit on Ash uh, actually prior to the tournament, which is unusual unless you get hit with a big player, which I managed to do so with Andy Murray. So that was actually really, uh, you know, a real big positive going into the match that I actually played there. But obviously under lights at Ash in a packed stadium against Rogers, uh, you know, it's a, it's a little bit different to, a, 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 you know, a pre-tournament hit with Andy. So... Early on, I thought Roger was playing some really good tennis. It was humid conditions, not too dissimilar to, to Brisbane, which probably definitely worked in my favour. I thought he was playing some really good tennis. He was up a set, and I reckon 5-3 serving for the second. And if you're down two sets to love against Roger, it's, um, you know, you never count yourself out, and that's not in my DNA. But, it, you know, it is it is nearly curtains. But bit by bit, I chipped away, and I never lost the doubt, and I never lost belief. And I started to play some really good tennis, and obviously I – I saw that uh, that perhaps Roger wasn't handling the conditions, which sounds ridiculous because he's he's an incredible, you know, player, and you know I, I love the guy actually. But uh, he started to to you know feel the conditions, I think, a little more, and I started to to really come on really strong. I was playing some really good tennis. I won some some really close sets, and and with that comes that confidence and that belief. But I guess the overall feeling at the end was was relief uh, when I won because I put myself in positions before to to really knock off one of these really top guys, um, but it's one thing putting yourself in a position and, and one of the toughest things is running through the finish line against these top players and uh, managed to do so. So first of all, it was relief. Then I started to to think a, a little bit more about uh, my fantasy football drafts that I had coming up because I couldn't postpone it any longer. <laughs> So I had about three, four hours sleep that night, I reckon, probably even less because um, I got up for, for my fantasy football draft, which I, I didn't actually have a good draft at all. Um, and then uh, went back to sleep and, and tried to get ready to, to play against Novak Djokovic. In the end, the draw was a little bit stiff probably. It's yeah. very rare you play Roger in the fourth round and Novak in the quarters. But um, what a tournament. So I am part of the last eight club. So at all the slams... If you make the quarters, um, so obviously the last eight in the tournament, you get a few privileges for life. So I'll have an accreditation and then a ticket for, for me and plus one for, for life there where I can go and enjoy the president's box there. And nice. um, and on your accreditation, you know, it, it has the, the L8 on your badge, which is pretty cool. So, uh, look, it's something I'm very proud of and, and something that I think captured the attention of, of a lot of people back home. And it's just a story that, that people are interested in and, and one that I don't mind telling because um, the support I felt from back home was immense. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it was a special night in, in, in New York. 
Now, John, I know I know beating the greatest of all time is cool and all that, but I'm going to nominate another one of your wins that I thought was your best ever. <laughs> I know where this 2016. is going. Yeah, Val, Val knows what I'm talking about. 2016, court four at Wimbledon. You beat Albert Montanus in five. Now, the reason I enjoyed that one so much was because I was in the stands that day. That was an awesome day. And, yeah, that, I just remember that as being one of my favourite ever days, getting to watch tennis at Wimbledon. And even better, I got to yeah. see John Millman on a salt-of-the-earth court at, at the All England Club. It was just fantastic. No, I appreciate that. And Court 4 is kind of really, it's one of the first ones on, on, on that uh, stadium side, on the, on the stadium court side, and it's kind of sunken behind the graveyard court. Um, <laughs> you have the people from the, from the cafe, the players' cafe upstairs looking down on it. But, yeah, Wimbledon's such a special place. It was 2015 when I actually broke through um, qualifying there, and that's when I actually broke through the top 100. And it took me a while to – I put myself in a really good position um, to get into that top 100. And it took me a, a few months longer than I would have liked because it kind of played on my head. And it's funny, the year before, the one time it didn't play on my head was when I was playing qualies of the – um, of Wimbledon because I just want to play Wimbledon. All of a sudden, I couldn't care about top 100. I just wanted to get in the manger of Wimbledon because you play off-site down the road at Roehampton on some cricket ovals and the practice courts are on some soccer pitches that, are, you know, the ball doesn't bounce. And I managed to get through qualies and all of a sudden, you, you know, you go from being in inflatable little kids' pools, ice baths, uh, and the tent where you eat at in qualifying and, and you're, all of a sudden you go to the the All England Tennis Club, which is probably my favourite tennis club in the world by, you know, Country Mile. It's one of the most special places. You walk through the gates, the recovery room, the ice baths are incredible there. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just such a, an unbelievable place to, to play tennis. And, and Wimbledon's a, a real treat. And, and, and something that, you know, these days when you really look forward to, to those really big places, um, obviously the ATP tour is awesome and I don't take it for granted. And um, But at times it can be a week-to-week grind. But throughout the year, there's some places that really still super excite you and, and Wimbledon's one of those places. And I remember that match against Montagnes, um, a tricky customer and, and, you know, had a mean slice. I don't think I did too much well that day. And the one thing I actually did well is I actually chipped my backhand slice around the court, which is unlike me because um, I'm like in to come over a lot of my shots pretty well that day. But, you know, that, that I think the next round I went on to, to beat Benoit Pair and then third mm-hmm. round I played Andy Murray on centre court at Wimbledon. So one of the, you know, well, it is the greatest court in the world. So it's... Um, no, that was a really memorable year for me. Um, after the Montagnes match and just going on to, to play against Benoit Pair, I found out that I'd made the Olympic team. So, you know, I also remember uh, the 2016 um, Wimbledon campaign with, with really fond memories. Yeah, well, I remember it very fondly. It was, uh, it was one of my probably favourite memories of all time. So thank you very much for uh, that. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I, um, yeah. it's, it's cool at Wimbledon where... You also there's a, there's a lot of Aussies that come and, and they, they do the line the queue which is you know can take for ages and um, you do get a lot of Aussie support though at Wimbledon it's um, it you know there's a lot of expats living there and, and they come out to the tennis and they, they really enjoy it and and um, you know at Wimbledon you're going to get some support from from Aussies which is uh, is pretty cool yeah absolutely uh, looking ahead to next year talking of, of slams. Obviously, we know that the uh, the Aussie Open's under a little bit of, of a cloud. 
have you have you sort of heard much from from the authorities um, in terms of like what's going on? Are you uh, are you being kept up to date with with how things are looking? It's tricky, mate. It's uh, it's it's really tricky. I know Tennis Australia. You know they do an unbelievable job at the Australian Open every year, year in year out. The facility's incredible, and the players love coming to to play the Australian Open. Um, so I can't fault the team there at all. Uh, I think Craig Tolley and, and Tommy Lana, and they do an incredible job there. So, but their hands are tied a little bit. You know, they they want to give some players some assurances and some guarantees and some some um, some some more confirmation on on when these you know when we're going to be able to come play. But their hands are tied a little bit, from my understanding, with the Victorian government. Um, yeah, I hope that for the players' sake that we can get some answers pretty soon. And from what I've heard, you know, it's going to be within the next week that we're going to, and it probably has to be because I think players have to start making their travel arrangements. Everything's so much more tricky these days in COVID too. You know, you have to get exams from Australia, but you have to get, get exams from your own country too. And there's no flights and it's it's really challenging. But I'm hoping that it can go ahead and I'm hoping that it can go ahead, you know, as close as possible to, to the, the full schedule um, because I love playing you know, those events, obviously, we know they're all moving to, to Victoria, which is a shame because I love uh, playing in Brizzy, but uh, hopefully it can go ahead close to its entirety. But perhaps it won't. Perhaps it might be a, a bit of a quarantine process and, and go straight into the Australian Open. Um, but let's hope it, it doesn't quite get to that. Uh, I know a lot of the, the international players, you know, they come a long way and, and hopefully we can have some sort of circuit because come all that way, obviously they will just for the Australian Open, but it is nice to have a, a bit of a circuit, not just for, for the fans, but also for the players that they can, you know, spend a little bit of time here and play some multiple tournaments after after making the trip down under. Yep, definitely agree. And just quickly, before we do get to, to some fun stuff, John, um, talk, to bit, talk to us about your role as being elected to the ATP Player Council. That's obviously a special honour being chosen by your peers to to represent them and um, yeah, talk to us about the honour and um, what you aim to achieve with the role. Look, there's, there's more elections coming up. I was uh, kind of elected to, to fill a bit of a gap when um, when four of the, the council uh, started to do the PTPA. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it's been really eye-opening and it's been actually a really good experience and I've thrown my hat in the ring again because uh, I find the governance of the sport quite interesting. Um, I'm of the opinion that the ATP can can always do a better job and and communication can be better and but but I've always been of the opinion too that um, you can't have uh, tournaments without the players but vice versa you know players need the tournaments too so I do believe in a you know a share as it is right now I do, I do believe in a 50 50 split with the the tournaments and the players and um, I think also, and, and what kind of, uh, you know, made me, you know, put my hand up when, when asked was, um, I do believe that Andre Gardenzi, who's the, you know, the, the chairman of, of ATP now, who, who got uh, put into his position, you know, this year, which is pretty tough. We had the bushfires in Australia, and then we went into a global pandemic. Um, I do believe that, that, you know, we should support his vision and, and give him a chance to, to implement his vision. Um, which is to have probably a more unified tour where, you know, we're, we're selling selling the rights as one big package as opposed to it being quite fragmented right now. 
So, uh, you know, that's something that I do believe in. And, and, and I'm the first to put up my hand and say that things can be better. I think that's like in, in any company, you know, we, we, we're never going to be 100% satisfied. But uh, it's an interesting period of time right now. And, um, you, you know, like, like I said, I'm a big believer in, in, in a really positive and, and working partnership with, with both the tournaments and the players. Uh, I, I don't think it can be one way or the highway. Yep, definitely agree. Now, just to, you yeah, go, you yeah go. absolutely. And uh, yeah, just sorry to butt in, Val. Uh, just to wrap up, John, we're going to close with some fun stuff. And uh, when we get players on, we like to go through some uh, some rapid fire questions where we kind of uh, like to kind of explore the human being behind the player. So the idea okay. is, and you'll get the idea pretty quick, we just kind of fire off some, some really quick questions at you. So the first one is, are you a wine or a beer man? I'm a wine wine man, yeah. And depends the food as to as to as to what wine I'll have with it. Yeah, very very nice. Rugby league, AFL or NFL? Oh, it's tough. Um, being a Queensland, it's probably a, a slight bias towards rugby league. But um, the the more I've travelled, the more I've probably enjoyed my NFL. Now, guys, I, I apologise. I've I've gone <laughs> American, but um, yeah, I love my my NFL. Yeah, and all those fantasy drafts as well, of course. Friends or Seinfeld? Seinfeld for me, yeah. And um, fellow Australian Jordan Thompson would agree. He's a mad keen Seinfeld man. That's great to hear. I've got newfound respect for you and Tom right now. Actually, that that was a great answer. Who is John Millman's favourite band or artist? Oh, that's a that's a pretty tr- tricky one there. Um, Look, I, I like uh, bands like, you know, The Temper Trap, The Killers. I saw The Temper Trap live a couple of times in Germany when they weren't big. And, um, you know, I, I really like them. And, um, Gang of Youth, you know, th- that type of, of style of music. Yeah, good call. Gang of Youth is sick. Is it Palmy or Palma? Oh, it's a chicken Palmy, yeah. No. Oh, controversial, controversial. We'll move on from that one. Favourite movie? Uh, favorite movie? Oh, that's a. It have to be some type of 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 sport related one. Um, something like a Remember the Titans. You know, I'll go pretty old school there. Uh, you can't get much better than that, though. Yeah, nice, good pick. Now this is your chance to throw someone under the bus if you want, because a couple of a couple of guys, I think okay. it may have been Mark Holmans that that said you for, for this question. Oh, Which yeah, Aussie guy? Mark, too serious. Oh, he's a good man, Mark Bond. He's very funny. Which Aussie tennis player thinks he or she is funny but really isn't? Oh, gee whiz. <laughs> Mark said me. <laughs> I think yes. it was him. Uh, was it Mark, Mel? Yeah, it was. It was. It was Bowman's, yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe Bernie Tomic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> I'm going to go Bernie. My sister just tried to call me. I had to decline it real quick. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to go Bernie Tomic. What's the best place you've travelled to for tennis? Oh, that's a really tough question because I've been I've been lucky enough to go to some unbelievable places. One of my favourite places, it, it, I'll, I'll actually pick a challenger that, that I've played a couple of times and it's just an unbelievable little little. T- down Aix-en-Provence, it's uh, South France, and 
Um, that region's unbelievable. Arno Clements, the tournament director there, who, you know, I loved as a player, but um, yeah, it's unbelievable. The, the lifestyle, they're very relaxed. I, I actually probably see a little few similarities with, you know, some of the Queenslanders there. They're, they're pretty relaxed. They're pretty chilled about their life right now. And um, they're all probably doing pretty well for themselves. So that's probably why they're so relaxed. But Aix-en-Provence, you know, that Southern France region is is pretty special when you get yeah, to Yeah, very nice. There. And very quickly, what's the worst place you've travelled to for tennis? Half, but um, probably Patesht in Romania. That was a really, that was a brutal week. I also remember, and I actually really like um, going to Korea. I've, I've, I actually really like Seoul and and uh, and Busan. Busan. And when I came up shoulder shoulder surgery, I went to Korea, and, and that actually really kind of kickstarted me again. So I don't want to be too critical, but there's a place in Gimcheon, Korea, that um, I was meant to be there for a month. There were four tournaments in a row there, and uh, yeah, I struggled. Yeah, I struggled. I was playing a little, a little bit earlier. More than fair enough, more than fair enough. But, John, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting tennis with you. You are one of our favourite players on tour, if not favourite. Um, yeah, it's been an amazing pleasure to chat to you on Breakpoint Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, and good luck with the rest of quarantine and in 2021. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. John Millman there joining us on Breakpoint Podcast. Joel, that was one of the best chats I think I've ever had, one of the best interviews, one of the most the biggest thrills I've had in my career. Um, interviewing anybody or just talking to anybody and um, yeah it, just chatting to John about his career he's the rumors are true he's the nicest person ever yeah he's a he's a great bloke um, gave us a lot of his time um, and uh, yeah I, I'm very much the same though I've been fortunate enough to interview a few a few athletes in uh, in my time mainly admittedly from from a different sport from the from the round ball game but that was certainly up there that was uh, absolutely memorable Yep, it definitely was. And talking about, like, just talking to a guy that's that's beaten Roger Federer, that's played on the same courts as, as Novak Djokovic, has played Rafael Nadal, has been there, done that, is part of an elite eight club and last eight club at a Grand Slam, which, yeah, admittedly, I didn't know existed at the Slams um, until this week. So fairly interesting, the, the fact that, you know, you make a Grand Slam quarterfinal, you've got accreditation plus one for life, which is pretty cool, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, and, and also the fact that uh, as things stand at the moment, there are only thirty seven men in the world that are better at him than are better at tennis than him. Yeah. I mean, it's like when you think about it that way, it's like, oh yeah. I know shit. It's nice. It's, it's exactly <laughs> right. And we've got him on our show, which is even even better. So no, an amazing thrill and thank you to John Milman for joining us and giving us so much of his time as well. He's a um, true testament to this game and um, the, the, one of the best custodians of this sport that Australia does have. And um, I think we need to have a John Millman Appreciation Day at some point uh, as an Australian public holiday um, in the not-too-distant yes. future. And I would wholeheartedly put my uh, put my heart, or heart, soul, effort, whatever, into, um, into creating this day. But Joel... It is time. We've only got one more show left uh, next week for the year before we do break up and um, and re- and then we'll reconvene when things sort of start to materialise in 2021. But one more show after this, which means this is our penultimate Benoit of the Week. And it is fitting that in our penultimate Benoit of the Week, we can announce the winner of the Benoit of the Year. Yes, we can announce the Benoit of the year. So we'll start with the Benoit of the week. Now, this man is 
featured a bit in uh, in Benoit of the week uh, all year, really, since we've returned to the to the airwaves. And um, Novak Djokovic, I think, is this seven times, Val, or six? No, this is number six. I've already updated it, number so this six. is number six. Number, number six. Number six. Now, a lot of times this year, we know that he's done things that have probably not been overly responsible, right? And this tweet that he's put up during the week... Maybe not necessarily irresponsible, but it was certainly unbelievably tone deaf. So this is what he wrote. Always a pleasure sharing the court with you, Sasha, at Alex Zverev. So this is obviously after he played against um, Sasha at the year-end finals. He beat him in, in – uh, it was three, wasn't it? Yeah, beat him in three. Yep. Great, ending, great ending of the season for you. Best wishes in what awaits uh, you on and off the court. Stay strong. Hopefully to qualify for, for semi-finals in the last year of ATP finals here in the O2. No, I'm not going to read the last bit. Um, stay strong. I mean, where do you where do you even where do you even begin to start with that? Um, let's let's not paint Alex as the victim. Look, I get that I get that this thing might be affecting his mental health, but yeah. and I, I hope that I hope that he's being looked after. I really do. But let's not paint him as the victim, please, because he's not the victim. Um, and of course, the, the tweet was referring to his situation off the court with Olya Sharipova, and then also um, uh, um, I forget what the, what his most recent partner's name is, but um, yeah, it's it's referring to his off off court situation. Um, and you know, from what we from what we understand, um, it's very poor behaviour from from Alex. And we've said a lot on this show that the way that he's gone about addressing it has uh, been really really average. Um, so for Novak to have come out and said that. Um, with the reach that, that he has and the influence that, that he has was really, really disappointing. Yep, definitely agree. And I think um, and just the year that he's had, and you know what, and, and I'm going to tee off on them again because they came after me personally yesterday and this is the, the sycophantic cult of the Nol FM. You guys need to get some help, genuinely, because to attack someone for a tweet that is true. He did talk about anti-vaxxing and he did essentially promote it. He did talk about drinking polluted water that had been healed with positive energy. He did encourage that. He had the Adria tour, ignored social distancing parameters in Serbia. It came out as fact. He did all of those things, hasn't responded to them. So where, and, and like, why are you trying to attack someone and other people that are stating this truth? Because you can't take criticism for your player. And it's just like, you know what? Just calm down. Read the uh, read the room. Don't call someone a xenophobe because they told someone to read, because they said Novak didn't read a room. Um, it's not xenophobic. It's not racist at all. And then you come out and call someone ignorant. Like, th- this was a whole Twitter thing yesterday. Joel, um, with um, with a good yeah. friend of mine, Darren Parkin, who was a big tennis fan, and um, he yeah, I abs- saw it. I he saw it. <laughs> absolutely copped it yesterday, and it was just like you know what, enough is enough, enough is enough. They just need to calm down, and it's come out in the media all year. And poor Laura Clark felt the brunt of it, um, and with what happened with her and and everything. So, yeah, it's been um. Yeah, it's been one of those years for Novak Djokovic, but we can award him the Benoit of the Year for being an absolute pillhead. So, um, yeah, there, there, <laughs> <Pillhead>. <laughs> there we go. Novak Djokovic is our first ever 
Benoit of the year. So he has now well and truly done something that Roger and Rafa haven't. Um, and yes, yeah, setting himself <laughs> apart in that way by winning the Benoit of the year on Breakpoint podcast. But um, the standings at the moment, sit, uh, we've still got one week to go, so we can get a um, uh, one of the junk time votes. Novak Djokovic, six. Alexander Zverev, three. I'm on two. Can't remember why. Um, actually, I think I can for <laughs> one. I had one, actually. Yeah, no, I think I can. But And then Nick Kyrgios, two. Benoit Pair, two. Uh, you got one, Joel. Equal with Trump, Federer, Fido MND, Fabio Fonini, Dominika Tsibulkova, Diana Yastrzemska, Eugenie Bouchard, Ozark, Tommy Haas, Kim Kleisters, USTA, Pat Cash, Arthur Ashe, DJ, The Fly on Mike Pence's head, Yelena Djokovic, Bernard <laughs> Tomic, and Borat Sagdiev. So that, if that that doesn't describe a 2020 list, I don't know what does. But um, yeah, absolutely fantastic show today with you, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure talking tennis as always. And if um, and there was nobody I'd rather share that John Millman interview with than you, mate. So thank you very much for your effort in today's show. Yeah, likewise, mate. It was absolutely brilliant. And uh, hopefully our listeners enjoyed it too. I hope so as well. Remember, you can follow us on social media at Breakpoint Pod on Twitter, Breakpoint Podcast on Instagram as well, and Facebook. And then you can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Wooshka, and wherever you get your podcasts from, we will be there. This has been Val Febo and Joel Frucci. Big thank you to John Millman talking all things tennis with us today and his career. We'll catch you next week for our final show of this weird and wacky 2020.